Hey y'all, I am Catherine Mills and you are listening to the Crude Audacity Podcast, the podcast that talks shop shit and all things strategy with oil patch influencers. Now, as you know, on this podcast, our main goal is to represent all sides of the oil field. And really, we do strive to get the full lay of the land, which leads us to a very complex and interesting topic, land. (laughs) And let's face it, land is a unifying concept across all forms of energy. No land, no energy. Kind of a unique concept if you think about it. So this side of the oil patch isn't just something you fall into. Really, it's it's incredibly complex. It's not just something that you can wake up one day and say, hey, I'm a land guy. So as such a crucial and complex topic for all energy, it's interesting how few actually understand the ins and outs of the land game. And I'm guilty, I'm one of them. I evaluate acreage. I do production forecast, and then if it shows up in my inbox a month later, great. But if not, no worries, my job was done. So today, we are going to finally learn a little bit about land. Here, returning for her second appearance on The Crude Audacity, the first lady of land herself, Lisa (laughs) Hamill. Welcome back to The Crude Audacity podcast. Thanks so much for having me back. (laughs) I am so thrilled you're here because... I, I really don't know anything about land. I, I kind of realized that as I built into my questions. So I'm really going to use this opportunity as my personal education. But you've been in oil for quite a while. So before we jump into my questions, how did you get started? What drove you to becoming a landman? And how did you ascend the ranks that you do from teaching to all you've managed to everything? How did you get started? <laughs> well, um the reality is, is that when I did start in it, it was something you could sort of fall into. Um, really? I had a very, you cannot do that anymore. No. Um, but when I started, I graduated from uh, University of Colorado at Boulder with a degree in communications. That's appropriate. And I wanted to uh, take a year off. I was going to go to law school. Okay. So I got a temp job. I was hired by a company called Integrated Resources, which did a lot of limited partnerships back in the 80s. Okay. And they needed somebody in their investor relations department, and they hired me because I had a communications background. (laughs) Um, That works out, though. It it worked out. And so I started uh, with this company, and I got to know some of the landmen. And obviously, there's a lot of law contracts uh, involved with land. Yeah, it's really complex. Yeah, so I got to know uh, some of the land, some of the landmen, and I was really fascinated and um, was hired to go be an assistant for a landman who only worked, he he officed with and only had one client. And they did a lot of acquisitions and mergers. They bought a company in Oklahoma City. And I so I spent a year working for him, but really I was just his assistant. Okay. And um, they bought a company in Oklahoma City, asked me if I wanted to go down and be an assistant for another landman down there. And I said, yes, I'd love to. (laughs) So I um, was going back and forth to Oklahoma City. And the landman, the contract landman that they had hired down there, who was supposed to be the land manager, came into my office one day and sat down and said, "Um, what do you want me to do? And I said, I I think you have this backwards. (laughs) And he said, no, 
Um, I'm afraid that they're going to move the company to Denver, and I have no desire to go to Denver. So they told me that you're the land manager, and I need to know what you want me to do. And you're the land manager. I, I was immediately elevated to the land manager, and I looked I was at him. Say, did you know this? I, I, I looked at him, and I said, uh, "Let me get back to you." And I went into the president's office, and I said, did, "Is there something you forgot to tell me?" And he said, "You can handle it. Figure it out." Oh, and, that was nice. Yeah, and so great o, leadership. OU has currently has a petroleum land management program and they did then as well so I drove down to Norman and I went to the bookstore and I bought some books and I asked a ton of questions and I kind of learned how to be a landman that's awesome yeah and so very resilient of you well it was it was um, I think we all have moments in our life of that sink or swim yeah and it's what you do with it right so you chose to swim good for you it was super fun and I've been (laughs) in it ever since and for better or for worse, back in the 80s, the company I was working for um, had a lot of lawsuits filed against it. And it was a very small company, and they did not want to spend a ton of money on attorney uh, on attorneys. So my father's an attorney. I'm not totally, you know, <laughs> contracts aren't incredibly foreign to me. I had done some work for him over summers and stuff. I'm definitely not an attorney. Yeah. But I wasn't foreign to it, and so I would put together settlement agreements and send them to the attorneys and say, is, you know, fix whatever you need to fix, but here's the general terms of of what we've agreed to for a settlement. So um, I would put that together, send it off to the attorneys. They would just then have to review it and and make changes and bless it. They didn't have to do the whole thing. So the company was saving money (laughs) and I was giving, I was getting my work covered by somebody who actually knew what they were doing. And, um, and I kind of thought, well, this is kind of like practicing law without having to go to law school. It was kind of a nice <laughs> blend of things. So, um, and I worked for that company for 20 years. Wow, it sounds like you kept them afloat, avoiding lawsuits. Yeah, so it was it was it was great. Um, you know, land manager sometimes meant I was the only land person in the office and sometimes only one of two or three people in the office, so I did other things. And sometimes we'd do a big acquisition and I would have, you know, five or six reports. So it was it yeah. was really varied. Um, but it's been a good career. But I, I don't know that you could really do that now. No, um, no probably not. It's, it's really evolved into its own complexity. Well, you know, back in like the 70s, I think you had to be an attorney. to get hired then in the (laughs) 80s when everything kind of fell apart they were like we'll just take people you know the the 80s was so fun (laughs) especially for the oil field (laughs) well my favorite one is uh you know the uh the company i worked for with all their limited partnerships really had no success which is of course why they're no longer around but I remember my favorite phrase was always, um, you know, what people would call to find out how their investment was doing. Mm-hmm. I would say, you know, you did read the front cover of the prospectus that said that, you know, this is a very uncertain and, you know, no guarantees here, right? Uncertain, no guarantees. <laughs> Sounds like reasonable and necessary. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it was an interesting time to be around. And, you know, from the 80s until the early 2000s, it was mostly acquisitions and divestitures. There wasn't okay. a lot, the companies I worked for anyway. There wasn't a lot of drilling going on. Mm-hmm. So it was. It's been kind of interesting from the early two thousands to now. My career has changed quite a bit. So. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing in terms of those changes? In terms of, I guess, the legalese behind it. Uh, I think there's 
there's nothing that hasn't changed. But I would say from a land perspective, from a contract perspective, everything, everything has changed. Joint operating agreements, leases. I mean, um, horizontal drilling has brought up all kinds of new things, all the, the new technology, the um, in just the landowners becoming much more savvy about what to ask for. And yeah, it used to just be a cup of coffee and you had yeah. a signature. Yeah, and, you know, which I think is kind of what gives us a bad name now. Like, we're, we just think Might, that, yeah. you know, <laughs> people think that we're just going to show up on their doorstep and make it sound really good. And, and, you know, I really, really try and work with landowners to explain exactly everything and answer all their questions. Um, they are our greatest asset and yeah. without them we would not be able to do what we do and we to, wouldn't have energy yeah <laughs> and and to your point i mean land has always been sort of the red-headed stepchild of the industry <laughs> um people you know engineers and geologists generally don't like it when we show up on their doorstep i mean the reality is is that you cannot drill uh without a lease yeah but we are also the ones that say no you can't move that location and here's what you you know here's where we can and cannot drill for whatever reasons, and so we're always kind of the bad guys coming yeah, in and yeah. saying, "This is why you can't do this." As I was opposed never to why encouraged to interact with land with the land side, and I always thought that was crazy because I'm making predictions on assets. <laughs> well, and and you know, I think one of the best questions I ever got from my son, who's an engineer, um, and I was so grateful that he reached out to ask me this question. He he was uh, call your mom. <laughs> he <laughs> he was working um, and he was tasked with plugging and abandoning some wells and mm -hmm. he called me and said we're about to pna some wells is there anybody in land i need to reach out to and i'm like oh yes 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 <laughs> because you know you can't even at the very end of of life you can't pl just plug a well uh you run the risk of losing that lease i mean there's 100%. all kinds of implications that go on with that um but i mean and when when I worked in the new grad program and we, we had the, the class that I currently teach at University of Colorado at Denver through the Global Energy Management Program, that class is based on a class that we had for our new grad program. Mm -hmm. And the idea behind that is that we really, in large companies particularly, you have um, everybody's so siloed in what they do. Yeah. And they don't often understand or know what the other aspects do. They, they don't have the whole picture. Mm -hmm. And so um, we really wanted people to understand what everybody else did. So we did this life cycle of oil and gas class so yeah. that the engineers understood what the geologists needed, the geologists, you know, understood, I mean, accounting, land, geology, uh, engineering, everybody understood what everybody else did. Yeah. If for no other reason than they at least knew to reach out and ask mm -hmm. a question. Exactly. So It's not only an end-of-month report that you need to be communicating with your right. team, especially right. land and accounting. you think that would pop up. Right. So you talked about the class that you teach. I am actively trying to find a way to sneak into that, just be aware. But... <laughs> <laughs> Take us through it. Can you give us a high level of, you know, the, the quick cliff notes on this class, learning about land, because there are different types of leases. Texas is not Colorado. Uh, so anything from sections to townships on how you engage and leading into how you actually pick a location. Because, I mean, I know this is a big question, so I'm expecting at least 30 minutes worth of conversation here. But, <laughs> you know, just give us the high cliff notes on what the rules and responsibilities are for land these days? Well, the land aspect is only one small piece of the class. Exactly. Um, and so, 
the, I, the idea behind it, uh, you know, the general um, agenda for the class is it's a two and a half day class. The first day is up at Noble Energy's uh, facilities up in Greeley, which is a fantastic place to, mm -hmm. to because they have hands on everything. They have compressors, yeah. they have, you know, tanks, they, you know, it's all you can, they're open, you can see inside. So we start there with all the engineering mm -hmm. and people can see it, touch it, feel it, you know, and then um, in the afternoon, and then we also do the EHS, the environmental health and safety, uh, you know, what we're regulated, how we're regulated. Yeah. Um, and then we go do a rig tour. Then we come back and we talk about the geology and the land. Okay. And then we play a game called the exploration game. And on the last day is all the financial stuff. So yes. it's reserves and uh, sort of a global view of energy um, and uh, marketing and trading. Okay. So it's a very broad class. The role of land is, I mean, we're sort of, in, in my opinion, we're sort of the coordinators, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, all aspects are incredibly important and they all need to work together and talk together. And I would say in my time um, over the last few years, that's gotten much better okay. at most companies. Um, we None of us particularly love meetings, but we're getting better <laughs> at having meetings where you have all parties in the same room mm -hmm. and everybody can discuss what the issues are with regard to a specific location. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of, um, you know, land works very closely, especially with regulatory yeah. on the siting of all of these wells because um, there are a lot of things, you know, there's setbacks, there are wetlands there are you know environmental environmental <laughs> yeah there's there's so many things that you have to look at yeah um and I've, I've shown you the presentation that i yeah. do in class but when you start layering all this stuff over um the presentation i showed you is basically you start with one section which is 640 acres Correct. and when i put every all of the layers on top of that i think we came up with maybe 10 acres that we could actually drill on I literally thought we came up with no acres, and then you were explaining how negotiations began. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's very complex, and um, it's getting harder and harder. Obviously, mm -hmm. in Colorado, siting uh, the well is 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 very difficult. And you know, I'll use Adams County as an example because they just passed their regulations mm -hmm. and. It's hard enough to find um, enough acreage to site one well, and that when you apply at, through Adams County now, they want you to not only show your original site, but two alternative sites, and then their regulations basically say, if we don't like any of those sites, no then, drilling. then we get to pick where you went, where you drill. Mm -hmm. Well, it, I, I wish geology worked that way. If it worked that way, <laughs> we wouldn't even have to be in Adams County or I anywhere know, else. There we would could, just be a layer of oil everywhere across right. the globe. We could just drill wherever we wanted to and make it as far away from people as possible. But geology doesn't work that way, and um, it really... It's very, very frustrating mm -hmm. because I know what we go through as a company are the engineers and the technology and the innovation and the regulations and everything that we have to do to comply with to find even one site. And then when we go to drill it, what we do do to cut down on air emissions and, and all these other things that we have to think about. Yeah. Um, it's it's very frustrating that, you know, in essence, that's just a ban on, on drilling when you make it that tough to even pick a spot to drill a well. Well, it's interesting you bring up surface areas, uh, not just because it's land, but because a lot of the people that I, that are my friends that are not in industry, if I drove past a well site, 
most of them would have no idea that that was a well site. They wouldn't even see it. So our reclamation efforts are improving immensely, and that's part of y'all's permitting and processing as well, correct? One of the things that people don't really understand, I think, about especially horizontal drilling Mm -hmm. is how much land we have given back to these communities. Yeah. Because when you go in and and you do – so we used to – under Colorado spacing, uh, existing spacing laws prior to horizontal drilling, you could have up to 32 wells per 160 acres. Mm -hmm. And in the DJ Basin in particular, a lot of those – a lot of those did have 32 wells because we were drilling as many wells as we possibly could. Um, (laughs) Now you can go in and be on the fringes of a whole section and drill through two sections and you can put a 12-well pad, for example. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, you're also going in and plugging a lot of those old existing vertical wells and reclaiming them back. So you're giving all of that acreage back to that community or that farmer or whoever. the other thing is, you know, you used to have to, when you drill vertically, you you're you have to drill where the geology is. Now Correct. you can, you can, you know, they changed that slightly with directional drilling, and then mm-hmm. they've certainly changed it with horizontal drilling. Oh yeah. And so it's um, it's been fascinating the the statistics around how much land we've given back. Um, I I we did a, a rig tour once, and the. Um, they were doing two horizontal pads together and they had the statistics on how much land, I think it was like 60 acres that they'd given back Mm -hmm. just with these two horizontal pads because of all the other wells that they had plugged and abandoned and reclaimed. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you, once a well is plugged and abandoned and reclaimed, you would never even know that it was there. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, they do a great job with reclamation. I mean, horizontal drilling from a, an impact to the surface and an impact to a community has greatly improved mm-hmm. everything. But that gets lost in the conversation quite often. Well, it's never brought up. Yeah. Um, well, dealing with, dealing with land, you're working with mineral rights. You're working with royalties. You're, I mean, it's all one giant contract that y'all are trying to negotiate through. So can you take us through sort of that process? Because you know that one of my back-end goals with this is to find the next big gusher area so that I can become a millionaire. So can you explain to me mineral rights, royalties, the interest, so that those that are not in industry who are listening can understand a little bit more of how the money flows and why it's important? Sure. We talk a lot about um, interests, different types of interests in oil and gas wells. One of the big issues, and I'll get into the types of interest in a second, but one of the big issues is, um, and it's it's particularly big in our area, mm-hmm. is the severance of the minerals from the surface. Well, that's how everybody gets paid. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know... Um, severance tax <laughs> well no it's 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 not that okay. it's it's um it's called a split estate okay so you have different owners for the minerals oh, than you do for the surface hole. okay yes, right. yes i know what you're talking about um so when the minerals are severed mm-hmm. um you are paid a royalty or a mineral interest and okay. they are similar but they're not the same okay um when you are taking a lease, you're going to want to talk to the mineral interest owner. Mm-hmm. You can own a portion of the production payments as a royalty interest, yes. but that doesn't necessarily mean that you own the minerals. So one of the first jobs that you do as a landman is you have to research and really figure out who owns what mm-hmm. and who are you going to be talking to about signing a lease. Mm-hmm. 
if the surface is owned separately, that's a surface use agreement that you're talking to people about. Now, yeah. a royalty interest or a mineral interest is an ongoing payment out of production. Some of these wells will produce for 30, 40 years. Yeah. So you are getting an ongoing payment out of production. If you're a surface owner, you get a one-time payment <laughs> for that surface location. <laughs> and that's one of the biggest, and you know, um, surface owners, it's challenging to work with surface owners when there's a severed mineral interest because Correct. they get that. Some surface owners are trying to demand what's called an overriding royalty payment, which would be an ongoing payment out of production. Yeah. But m no company that I know of yet is doing that because it decreases our net revenue interest or the money that we get out of the well for paying and producing it you know, over all these so years. So the company is just pushing back. It comes out of our operating interest. Well, it's, it's just not... Nobody has done it yet here in Colorado. I hope they don't. I think it would be a terrible precedence. Mm -hmm. But um, but what I will say is where we used to pay $10,000 for, or even $100,000 for one well pad, um, or even if it was a horizontal pad and we had 12 wells on it, we're now paying $100,000 per well. So, so if nobody's it, really missing out here. Yeah. <laughs> no, they're they're making a lot of money up front, but mm -hmm. they don't have an ongoing interest. And, they, and it is frustrating if you're working the surface of the land and you're a farmer and it's taking up space. Well, that's, you know, it is an issue and it's a yeah. big issue. Absolutely. Um, so it's, that's one thing that you have to be aware of. So the different types of interests are, you know, you have a working interest. Well, mm -hmm. that's what you, that's going to be anybody that owns an interest in in the actual well itself. They're going to pay for all of the costs associated with drilling and and mm -hmm. producing that well. That's the only interest that is a cost-bearing interest. Mm -hmm. Everything else is just a share of production. Okay. So you have the royalty or mineral interest and again, the mineral interest is the actual person that owns the minerals. They're, they can assign out. You can assign out something called a non-participating royalty interest. So if I, as mom, have the mineral interest and I inherited it from my family, uh, and eventually it will go to my children, mm -hmm. um, I but I want them to get a share of the proceeds now. I yeah. might retain the ownership of the minerals but give them a non-participating royalty interest, which okay. means they get a share of production until such time as I pass away, mm -hmm. then it will pass to them. So as a landman, you're going to want to get those non-participating royalty interests or anybody who has a royalty interest to ratify the lease mm -hmm. so that when, if and when something happens to the mineral owner that you your interest is attached to, they've agree, already agreed to the terms of the lease. Correct. Then you can have an overriding royalty interest, which you still see a lot of, but I don't think people really grant a lot of them anymore. Mm -hmm. They can be very, very lucrative. Um, I have a, my, my favorite story that I tell in class is, uh, you know, the Jonah Field, the original owners of the Jonah Field up in Wyoming, uh, they gave um, an overriding royalty interest to their um, employees one year for Christmas. And, um, you know, they had... Lucky them. Yeah. They had drilled enough wells to, to pretty much prove up the field, but yeah. they didn't have the they didn't have the money to do what really needed to be done with it so they sold it to Encana. Okay. Encana went in and did amazing things. And this was many years ago, but I remember I was a division order analyst and I was you I was kind of looking at what some of these checks were. So the first year at Christmas all the employees were like, "I oh, know, thanks very much. That was really a nice gift. I think they made like 20 bucks." <laughs> 
Um, when I left in Canada, or when I was at in Canada, this was probably 2003, 2004, um, some of those checks, because Incana had come in and drilled up the field, so there was there was a lot more production, mm-hmm. l- more wells that they were getting money off of. Some of those people were making $250,000 a month. Poor them. Yeah. So <laughs> it, <laughs> it ended- pays to know your land. <laughs> it, it does pay. Um, and, you know, overrides used to be a geologist would put together a play, and they would take that play and shop it around to different companies, and they would sell their their play, their their ideas, yeah. and retain an overriding royalty. So yes. that that's where the that you know that's where some of those would so come. That's how all the geologists got so rich. <laughs> Cheaters, well, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, a lot of landmen would do the same thing. Brokers would go out and put together acreage plays, and then they would shop all that acreage to a, an oil and gas company, and they would sell them their uh their acres or they would train assign their acreage to them and retain an overriding royalty so i'm so jealous uh, yeah (laughs) no they're they're a good thing to have um you can't uh, you know if you're a publicly traded company you can't give any overrides it's it's against sec regulations and fairly so yeah fairly (laughs) so so i don't see a ton of them if you're a small company maybe you'll get one or something but it's they're not as common but you know, in an area where I'm working, these wells have been around since the 70s. Yeah. So there's a lot of overrides associated with a lot of this production. Correct. Talk to us a little bit, because we always hear, oh, they want to drill on federal lands. And I don't think anybody outside of this industry has any idea what that actually means. So can you talk to us a little bit about the leases, the different land types, and what it means to actually acquire a lease? Well, um, (laughs) I know that's a big question. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, um, federal lands are very, very different from what we call fee lands. So fee lands are owned by individuals or corporations, and that's pretty much what you deal with in the DJ basin. There's not, not a lot of federal lands in the DJ basin, Mm -hmm. but most of the federal lands are in the West. So if you're talking Utah, Wyoming, Western Colorado, New Mexico, um, you're going to be dealing with a lot of federal lands. Um, when it comes to federal leases, what you have to do is nominate. If there's a, a lease that you want mm-hmm. that is not currently leased, you nominate it to the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management. Yep. And then they decide whether or not they're going to put that lease up for, um, is it auction make it available. Or? If they make it available, mm-hmm. yes, it's, a, it's an open bidding process. Okay. So it's a live auction, and you can go and bid on it. Um, I've never been to one of these, so... They're interesting. They're very, very interesting. <laughs> Don't raise your hand at the wrong time. Um, <laughs> Come home with a cow. Right. So, um, and when you do that, it just you've nominated it, but it's still an open bidding process. So any uh-huh. anybody can bid on it. Yeah. I think pretty much federal leases are so hard to get that everything gets bid on because they don't nominate a lot. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions is that, I mean, the majority of our um, reserves in the United States are under federal lands. Exactly. And I, I, I think it's like only 12% of uh, the actual lands that are available are actually currently leased and producing right now. See, it's a very a small statistic? amount. Yeah, everyone a, gets up in arms until you actually talk numbers, and then you're like, right. "Oh, it's nothing." It's a very, very small percentage. And of course, we, you know, if it comes to a national park or something, those are never available no. for nomination. Mm-mm. So um, it's 
it's there's a bunch of acreage that's taken out right away because it's national parks and areas yeah. where you can't drill. Um, but the amount of acreage that you can actually nominate and bid on is is very very small. So companies do try and take advantage of what is available. Yeah. But I will also say that getting a permit on federal lands can take you know the. <laughs> the time it takes in Colorado to get a permit has been extended greatly, obviously, especially yes. after 181. But prior to that, even if you if it cost if it took you 30 to 60 days to get a permit uh, on fee property, it could take you up to five years in certain areas to get a permit. So it's not really that easy to drill anywhere. It's not that easy to drill, and a lot of times anymore they're asking for you to do environmental impact studies, and I've seen some of those take oh, up to 10 years. years. Yeah. yeah. So and then once the you go for tortoise, right? <laughs> and then once you get a permit, there's all kinds of conditions of approval that you have to you know comply with. You mm-hmm. can only drill certain times of the year. Uh, you can't drill during hunting season or sage grass or, you know, I mean, there's all different kinds of stipulations that they have about when you can and can't drill. So drilling on federal lands is is complex. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you take us through what the Great Land Grab was? Because you hear that reference, but not. I don't think everybody gets a full concept of what, why, and how it started going. Are you talking about like when Cheney, when everybody said that we're... You know, again, it's nobody put the numbers to it. They just mm-hmm. made it sound like he was making everything wide open and people could Marketing. could just go lease whatever they wanted to. And that Wasn't was that's case. never been the case. You have to nominate it. It has to be approved by the BLM. Then you bid on it. Mm-hmm. And for a while there, um, companies were bidding on and winning federal leases, but then they would not be issued. Yeah. Um, and they had paid for them, but the leases, they were holding off on even issuing the leases. So it's it's um, it's very convoluted and and complex. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I kind of when I talk about, you know, I talk about in class the number of, you know, the percentage of acres that's actually producing right now is so small um, I kind of laugh when I hear this giant land grab. I'm like, well, when did that happen? When did that happen and who's doing it? And if you look at the statistics about the number of acres that's actually um, producing right now, it has dropped dramatically from mm-hmm. the 80s. So oh, yeah. there was a point when, yes, we were drilling more and we were allowed access to more, but that has gone away. Well, you the pushback you'll hear is that, oh, all these companies, they just uh, have the permitting process going, 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 going. The reality is, is that that happens because most of those permits are never awarded. And it takes, like you said, sometimes two to five years to even get one of them back to get going. Yeah. I mean, if you're an oil and gas company, you're looking three to five years out anyway. You have to. So, um, and that's one of the things, you know, we go over is what are the most important parts of a lease? Mm -hmm. So the most important parts of the lease are the bonus up front. Okay. So initially when you take a lease, you're going to pay X dollars per acre. Okay. And that is pretty much determined still by people paying attention to what their neighbors get or what's the going rate. We're going to talk about that yeah. because I want to talk KPIs and land for, with you in just a bit. Okay. But how are you seeing um, landowners change? How are, how are their attitudes evolving towards oil and gas? Because, you know, it used to be the farmer and the oil and gas guy went hand in hand, and now we're seeing, you know, uh, external politics coming into what it means to actually drill or quote unquote ban fracking. So how has the attitude of the landowner evolved over time? 
Well, again, that varies um, quite a bit. Most landowners um, that I work with actually, um, they're appreciative of what we do for them. Where you are know? all the places you've you've gotten to <laughs> bestow your expertise, <laughs> if you will? <laughs> well, currently I'm in the DJ, but yeah. I have worked Wyoming, North Dakota, Kansas, Utah, uh, Texas, uh, Oklahoma, Louisiana. So um, really everywhere there's oil. Well, everywhere. I've never done the Marcellus, so okay. nothing in Pennsylvania. You know. <laughs> Who cares? No, right. no, I won't say that. Yeah, so, you know. So I've, you've really seen a full gamut of what it means to be a landowner and a mineral owner here. Yeah, and I've worked with fee owners, and I've worked with the BLM. I've worked with the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Um, when I was in Oklahoma, mm-hmm. we dealt Ooh. a lot with the Indians. How is that? You know, they're... They're quite savvy, most of them. Yeah. Some of them are not, but um, they're... You can say that about the BLM, too. Well, and that's... <laughs> or, or any individual landowner. Oh, yeah. Texas landowners were always very, very savvy. Colorado is now, too. I mean, it's changed quite a bit. Hmm. Um, and and I think it's changed for the better. I'm yeah. happy that they are, they're paying more attention. Um, but I think, you know... If you're a surface owner and you don't own the minerals, sometimes you're not very well received when you try and talk to them. Uh, they don't really want it's you a there, spot. even if even if you're coming with a big check, you know. And I don't blame them. I mean, I my grandfather had a ranch. Um, when you work really hard on the land, you um, you know, I try and honor that. They, yeah. This is usually multiple generations of people that have worked this land it's very important to them and they know every grain of it I mean they and so you know I all of us I think really try hard to work with people on what can we do for you how can we make this mutually beneficial Mm -hmm. make it a win-win situation we know we're an imposition we try very hard to not be an imposition um we will work with them on we'll improve their roads or if they're dirt roads sometimes we send water trucks out in the summer to keep the dust down yeah um we you know we will work with them on landscaping around our facilities Mm -hmm. or special fencing so it's not just chain link fencing big walls big well (laughs) big walls are sort of a um Big walls are great because people required them and it cut down on noise and, and everything else and lights, but now they're now, they're, now they're saying what's going on back there. Yeah. You know? So uh, that's kind of a no-win situation. But, you know, if they own the minerals, um, they're obviously happy to talk to you. If they own the surface and the minerals, it, it varies um, from place to place. Mineral overrides surface every time, right? Mineral has overridden surface for... Since the beginning. Hundreds and hundreds of years. Hmm. And that's why it's so interesting, some of the law, some of the, from a legal standpoint, some of the cases that are being brought um, where they're trying to have the surface override the minerals that would override hundreds of years worth of the way we've handled things it doesn't you know and again I I think I try and approach every landowner every situation every case every 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 situation is a little bit different as is you know a fee situation is very different from a federal situation Um, and anytime you're looking to drill a well you're going to be talking to regulatory groups in the BLM or landowners or 
town councils, city councils. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's so many different people that you have to talk to and so many different interests that you have to balance mm-hmm. that it's become, you know, in, in my opinion, it's become more challenging, but almost more fun because... Um, <laughs> a new day every day. It is a new day every day. And, and I just, you know, we talked about this in the other podcast. I, I think um, people's view of energy is a little short-sighted sometimes. Exactly. And the reality is, is that... Um, it doesn't really matter the form of energy. It's the not in my backyard aspect of everything. So let's talk about that. Um, not in my backyard. And we've had a couple instances here in Colorado where not in my backyard, the oil companies get blamed immediately, but it might be the real estate not paying attention to something like an offset or maybe there was a pipeline there. So can you kind of take us through how this has become an argument? Well... I think there's a disconnect um, in the public's eye. Uh, the The main issue we're talking about probably is setbacks. Mm-hmm. And the COGCC and the public has demanded greater and greater setbacks for oil and gas companies for our operations. Yes. Um, most people don't realize that municipalities um, are in charge of, not the COGCC, but municipalities are in charge of what the setbacks are for new development around existing facilities. So you're talking about homes, new homes, businesses, whatever. I mean anything that is human related. Mm-hmm. And most of most municipalities and this is changing in some areas, but currently most municipalities require about a 150 foot setback from uh, from new or from existing oil and gas production. Where is the other way around? The opposite it, it's the act, you know, it's total opposite. I mean, you know, uh, Prop 112 was 2,500 feet, and mm-hmm. some there are, you know, now they're looking at 2,000 feet in mm-hmm. some areas. Um, so yes, they expect us to be very, very far away, um, but, but they they, they allow, and that causes encroachment issues for exactly. us. Exactly. Um, sometimes they ignore where our pipelines are. They build over them. You can't do that. It's it's very specific in all of our easements that we take. Are you talking about one particular instance? <laughs> well, no, no, no. I'm not talking about any particular <laughs> instance. I'm talking in general. Yeah. Um, but it's um, it gets very challenging, and we're constantly, we're, you, you know, we're constantly having to monitor new development, where it's going in. You know, all of our easements are public record. Mm -hmm. Um, And most developers do recognize that, you know, they do pay attention to that. Mm -hmm. But you have, sometimes you have some small developers or you have, um, you know, it's, it's, again, it's a situation by situation thing, but sometimes you get small developers that and they're they're just as frustrated and confused as we are because when we start telling them, oh, if you're going to even be crossing over our pipelines to take big heavy trucks in to build yeah. these houses, you have to do you have to abide by these things. Yeah. And if you're a small developer, that's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. And so sometimes I think they just you know would rather not contact us and have that conversation so you know i think that one of the biggest things that i've seen in the dj basin and i've been watching it since 2003 when i started in here is the intersection of development and oil and gas Mm -hmm. and it's been challenging on for everybody not just oil and gas and it's been um 
fascinating to watch and a learning process for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, developers, oil and gas, uh, cities and counties, you know, everybody has had to take a new fresh look at this. I don't think that's a bad thing. I no. think that there's room for improvement in any industry. Always. I think the oil and gas industry in Colorado has has worked very hard on those improvements and we've worked very hard with all of the regulating bodies to mm-hmm. help do what we can. Um, I, I think it's it's unfortunate that you expect perfection in anybody when you've never gone down that path before. And horizontal agree. drilling um, and the intersection of development and drilling in DJ is new for a lot of people. Now with 181, you have local control. So a lot of these local governments mm-hmm. are having to figure out what does this mean to us? What kind of regulations do we want? It's a learning curve. And I think people forget about that mm-hmm. learning curve. And, you know, it's not just oil and gas. When it comes to not in my backyard, people don't want wind farms. They don't want solar farms. They don't want nuclear power plants. They don't want big box stores. They don't want (laughs) a 640 home new residential area going in next door to them. My area is fighting that right now. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, it's, this is all of us trying to work together and that's, you know, and we all use energy. So how do we have this conversation? People are going to be impacted no matter what form of energy you use. A hundred percent. So isn't it funny though, that land is the unifying factor between all forms of energy? Yes. You have to have land for all forms of energy. (laughs) So what are some of the other issues being faced um, by other forms of energy? Because we know what we're facing here in the oil and gas realm. But are wind farms facing the same thing? Is solar facing the same thing? Because it seems like a politician will say, well, just set it up in the desert. Reality is, is you don't know or you don't have a concept until you see it on how big that impact and that footprint is. Whereas a wellhead, you would be lucky if you saw it walking past it. Well... Um, it's interesting. I have a friend who works in the wind industry and I, I saw her on a panel, um, at the, uh, energy and water Institute up in steamboat Springs. And we were, they were talking about community relations and she said, Oh, we have just as many protesters as oil and gas does, which really kind of shocked me in the beginning. I think wind has more than solar. Yeah. Um, I think nuclear anywhere outside of the East Coast is going to have more than anybody mm-hmm. uh, because, unfortunately, nuclear is the only it's form been... of energy that's done a worse job of helping people understand what they do and don't do than oil and gas. They are truly our, was it the redheaded stepchild, yeah. the creepy twins. <laughs> and, and probably our best option for a carbon-free um, solution going forward. A hundred percent. Not economical now, but it's it's the best option. So, um <laughs> You know, I, I, they obviously would have a lot of, of protesters. Yeah. You, you look at hydroelectric, and then you get the environmentalists in there as well. Oh my God. And such um, a buzzword for them. Yeah. I, so, there, there, it doesn't matter what form of energy it is. There's mm-hmm. a pro and a con to all of it, and somebody somewhere is going to be impacted by it. A hundred percent. Whether it's the environment or a community or just a person living close to it. Um, I think we all need to be more respectful of the impact of the people that are impacted by it. hundred percent. And, but you know, the reality is, is if you live in downtown Denver, you probably aren't even aware of what's going on up in Weld County with people that are living around all of this stuff. And so again, it's an education process. And I think it's important that everybody understand all the different forms of energy and why they're all needed and how they all work together. But the reality is, is that yes, somebody is impacted by it and not in my backyard is great but if everybody says not in my backyard we're all kind of in trouble 
Well, my only caveat to that would be it needs to come from both sides and wanting to understand because the oil and gas industry, the wind industry, and solar, they cannot give an inch every time someone else asks for a mile, and we have to pay attention to the science behind it. So if you're complaining that you don't want noise, but then when the walls go up, you can't complain that the walls went up to prevent the noise. Well, unfortunately, the energy argument is not People want to talk science, but the energy argument right now is very emotional. Exactly. It's not science-based. And when you try and present science, Mm -hmm. they think you're trying to cover something up or you're only presenting science that serves your point. Um, You know, they're they're really not interested in hearing. And I'm talking about the 20% of people that are just, you know, get away from me, I don't want to talk to you about it kind yeah, of yeah. people. I'm not talking about, you know, sort of the 60% of people that are in the middle going, I don't really know, I don't understand, help like, me understand. Let's have a coffee conversation. <laughs> right. But unfortunately, I think the 20% that that are the most emotional and most vocal, vocal are sort of winning the conversation right now. And that's where we all need to step up and say, wait a minute, we do need to be looking more at the science. And we do mm-hmm. need to be being, we need to be more realistic about Correct. energy. Um, and, you know, you and I have had this conversation, but how do you have a more holistic energy conversation? And that's really what needs to happen. We need to stop having this polarizing conversation Correct. and come back to um, we all are in this together mm-hmm. and we all need it. And Absolutely. how do we make it work for everybody and you know the old adage is you're never going to make 100% of people happy 100% of the time <laughs> that's true there are things that happen and you know people nobody's ever going to be happy 100% of the time but i think we're moving way too far away from the middle mm-hmm. on this conversation well all the topics you have hit just adds or should shed some light on how complex the side of the matrix is when in, in regard to land and regulation it's amazing to me that we can become so siloed and see how much you're doing. Because the reality is, without land, there is no energy, there is no oil and gas, there is nothing. So if someone is interested either in joining the land side of our matrix, or you like that, the matrix, (laughs) or um, just learning more about land opportunities with energy, Mm -hmm. what advice do you have for them to start digging, to start reading, to start understanding how land works for the oil and gas environment? Well, I get asked this question a lot, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I think there are a lot of people in the oil and gas industry, a lot of them ask me how they can become landmen. Mm-hmm. Uh, in today's day and age, pretty much you neither you either need to have a petroleum land management degree or a law degree. There are only three That's schools. really hard. <laughs> yeah. There are only three schools right now that offer a, P- a PLM degree, I think, actually maybe four. The three big ones are Western State down in Gunnison, OU in Norman, and Texas Tech in Lubbock. Okay. Those are the ones that have the three more most robust uh, uh, PLM programs. Yeah. Uh, Western States is now called the Energy Management Program, which I think is very important because <laughs> it's we should look at all forms of energy. Exactly. Um, but... There are other opportunities. You don't have to be a landman. There's all you can be a lease analyst, which is anytime a lease comes in, you analyze all of it and put it into the system, and that's how we track how many acres we own. Okay. Um, and that's a very specialized position, and you know, most needed. Like if you 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 need to know where you can and can't drill and how many acres you have, and if you um, if you 
operate in a state where they have a lot of federal units, there's yeah. something called chargeable acres. So you need to make <laughs> sure how many you don't exceed your chargeable acres. And so you have to understand how to account for all that acreage. Mm -hmm. Then there are division order analysts, which are sort of post-production. Um, they are the ones that figure out once this well is actually producing, who gets paid and how yeah. much. Uh, you have to review if there are any title requirements, because title can get very ugly very quickly on very a lot quickly. of these wells as to who owns what. And do mm -hmm. they, you know, is it owned in the, is the, are all the um, I's dotted and T's crossed on, on how they got that acreage. Lots so, of lawsuits. Yeah, there's a lot of curative that you have to do, and you have mm -hmm. to reach out to owners and say, I need you to provide X, you know, this document or that document. Yeah. Um, so there are a, a number of other ways that you can get involved in the land side of things mm -hmm. without being an actual landman. Mm -hmm. Well, that kind of wraps up my educational portion of this podcast so I do appreciate that because like I said I just haven't had the exposure so if I haven't had the exposure I know there are tons of other people that haven't as well but let's bring it home to Colorado mm -hmm. 181 everyone knows that this is becoming a patchwork worth of regulations and we are redlining the heck out of it not because we don't want to comply but because reality is different than fantasy so how is 181 affecting the land side and what do you what if you had an ear in all of these counties who are just jumping the gun before a state comes out what would you say to them about you know kind of slowing the roll and learning more about the land side and what the implications are actually for land and drilling well a lot of you know i think the potential of 181 and it remains to be seen because they they're still working through everything it's very complex yeah but um the potential is that you're going to have a lot of communities or a lot of counties where they basically have a ban on drilling yeah and it's going to be interesting to see what happens with those mineral owners <laughs> because that's basically a taking of their rights if you, they have the right to produce their income. Well, that's what I mean. They have a yeah. right to produce their minerals. Mm -hmm. And if you're taking away that right to produce those minerals, I can see lawsuits against these counties saying, you know, you, you're taking my, you're taking away my legal rights. Exactly. And so I, I haven't heard of any of that coming up yet. Yeah. Um, I know that at one point, uh, there is a, a group called the National Association of Royalty Owners, and then there's CAMRA, which is, uh, I think, the Rocky Mountain uh, royalty owners. But at one point, when Boulder had a moratorium on drilling, there was talk about doing a class action lawsuit for all the mineral owners. Interesting. Um, because the amount of money uh, that was attributed the reserve attributed to the reserves was in the multi-billion dollars mm -hmm. um, that Boulder County was preventing from being um, developed. Mm -hmm. So I, I think there's that possibility. Yeah. I also think just from a surface perspective, the whole siting issue is going to be um, challenging setbacks. You know, when you have different counties and every county has a different setback or the mm -hmm. municipalities within that county for local control have different setbacks. Um, it's just going to become very, very challenging. From a land perspective, I think I get frustrated with the fact that we've already gone into a lot of these communities and done operating agreements with them, saying this yeah. is how we will operate in your community. They've agreed to that, and now they have new government or new, you know, new officials in those roles, and they're they're now writing those regulations and things that we worked very hard to negotiate with them so that it would benefit 
everybody in the community um, are now being sort of set aside. So it's overriding previous operating agreements? Yeah, and not, certainly not in all cases. And in some, in some cases we're like, they're like, we're good with the operating agreement that we have. And again, that's, I think that's what's going to be most confusing of Mm -hmm. all is if everybody has a different different rules, different regulations, different fines, different fees, different permitting processes, different setbacks, different you know, there's so many things to take into consideration. And if every single one of those is different, the cost of doing business here and the confusion around doing business here confusion. is gonna be uh, it's gonna be interesting to watch. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, maybe maybe some of the stuff that comes out of 181 will make i've you know they they're talking about wanting development plans and that kind of stuff well if you're in the if you're over on the western slope and you're in a federal unit you have to submit you have to submit development plans every year yeah this is how many wells we're going to drill this is what our plans are and i don't i i don't know that that would be a problem mm-hmm. over here on the you know on the plains and with fee owners or with these municipalities mm-hmm. to say here's our development plan we just haven't done it. It doesn't mean it's not possible. It doesn't mean it's the best solution. But, you know, I it's and it's hard. Um, like I said, most companies look three to five years out when they're de- um, developing these drilling plans. But when you don't know when you're going to get permits and you don't know what the setback's going to be and you don't know, I mean, there's so many things that you don't know. It makes it hard to do that three to five year plan. Yeah. So how are you supposed to develop a, de- a development plan, especially in a community that hasn't yet figured out what those regulations are going to be? What's going to happen with our permitting? What What do you foresee? Because we're already running into situations where it's two years, five years, and now we've got 181. Are those permits that are in limbo going to remain in limbo, which means that all of the dollars that we bring into Colorado are going to not be brought in, really? I mean, they're just going to go away. Well, I've seen several articles about, oh, you know, 181 didn't harm anybody because the companies are still drilling. Well, again, we've been planning for three to five years. So exactly. most of what we're drilling in 20, through 2020 are permits that had already been approved. Oh, back in 2015. Right. Well, not that far because you, <laughs> you can only have two years, uh, two or three. I can't remember. Um, anyway, um, they, uh, you know, the number of permits issued every month has mm-hmm. has gone down a fair amount. Yeah, and nobody knows what the future of permit is permitting is going to be now. I mm-hmm. think that is still in limbo. Yeah. And so I, I don't know that there'll be any significant difference to the state. Maybe through 2020, there will be decreased production of some sort, mm-hmm. but we will have some new production to offset that. But I think after 2020, nobody knows. I don't think anybody's going to know until they, the new regulations come out uh, from the COGCC and we get some of these questions answered and they have a better handle on what they can and want to approve or mm-hmm. don't want to approve. Um, so I, I, uh, you know, you asked Dan Haley this the other night too. And I I think it's, nobody has this crystal ball that's going to say, this is how the rules are going to look. This is what it's going to look like. This is what permitting, this is how many wells we're going to permit a month. Nobody has those answers right now. So I don't know what the future of permitting holds. It'll be interesting. It's got me all, it's got my blood pressure up just a little bit. Um, so I want to go to the KPIs uh, of land itself and really on the idea of the cost of acquisition because it changes so much. I mean, 
blows my mind how much the Permian is, even on like super fringe of the mm -hmm. geology versus what's happening up in the powder, you're seeing it increase. So now the industry is pushing back. We are at a pivot point. This is a prolonged market downturn. It's time to get savvier instead of just drill, baby, drill. We need something where we change our key performance indicators to who is doing a good job, what, why, and how. How is land going to evolve? How is the evaluation of the actual cost of the minerals and the surface going to change with this downturn as well? Because the money is not really there anymore or it's changed, it, it, it itself has changed. Well, it's changed. I think that's, sometimes that's why you see um, a lot of acquisitions, because if you do an acquisition, you're getting their land mm -hmm. position. Um, that's certainly one of the metrics that they look at in, yeah. a, in an acquisition. Um, when it, I think you're talking about sort of two different things. What's the cost of getting new leases mm -hmm. versus the cost of drilling on the leases you Correct. already have? Yeah. The cost of getting new leases, again, you know, that can vary based on bonus payments. And you're right, down in the Permian. And I've seen, and again, people talk to each other, right? And so um, we were paying about $500 an acre in the Haynesville, and uh, everybody seemed to be happy with that. <laughs> and the next day, Chesapeake came in and started offering $5,000 an acre. I'd be real happy with like, that change. Like overnight. Well, some of some neighbors were not always happy with their other neighbors. <laughs> the The cost of acquiring new acreage can vary. It varies by area. It varies by owner. It varies by amount of acreage. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're going to pay more in you know in the DJ when you're taking a an acre that's or a at least it's only a you know like quarter of an acre or an acre, mm -hmm. you're probably going to pay more for that one acre than you would if you were getting 160 acres. You know, you'd pay a little less per acre for that. You yeah. know, it just depends. Every landowner, it's one of the things that is negotiable in a lease. Mm -hmm. um, the three things that you negotiate are the bonus payments, the um, royalty interest, yeah. <laughs> oh, and the term, how and many, term. how many years. Okay. So, um, and that can go anywhere from, you know, I've had people ask for three months, and I've actually seen a 30-year lease. Oh. Three months is not something that you want to do. Nope. Um, three years is pretty standard, but now it's three years, and generally you'll have a two-year option to extend. If mm -hmm. you do that, then you have to pay, make another bonus payment at that end of the three years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's all kinds of ways to negotiate it and put it all together. So those are some of the KPIs that you look at when you're talking about acquiring acreage. Okay. Um, developing acreage, obviously, you're going to look at how many how many wells can you put on there, what's your net revenue interest going to be, how exactly. much, you know, how much how much acreage do you own in the drilling and spacing unit? Um, my side of it. I yeah. understand that. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you're going to look at um, the NRI and, uh, you know, a lot of operators really want to be, you know, they want to have the majority working interest. Yep. That means um, they're in charge. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, you know, there's, there's so many different things that you mm -hmm. have to look at, but I do think when things sort of do a downturn, you tend to see more farm out agreements. Okay. Um, where if I have acreage that I'm not currently drilling and I don't have anything budgeted for it, but there's another company in the area that really wants to actively drill there and they do have the budget for it. Mm -hmm. Maybe they'll come approach me and say, will you farm out, you know, will you do a farm out with us? So yeah. some sort of agreement where, you know, we still have control of our acreage, but we're not putting in the upfront cost, but we have the opportunity to come back in if we want to. So there's all kinds of different agreements that you can structure, particularly when uh, when you, you aren't going out and doing like major land buys. Mm -hmm. um, but, and, and I think that's, again, what you see, you'll, 
larger companies will small will acquire smaller companies that have a great acreage position. Exactly. Um, we're seeing a lot of that right now. <laughs> yeah. So I think you see more acquisitions and farm outs and things like that when, when the economy slows a little bit yeah. or when the prices go down. Um, and when prices are up, that's when you see people building up their acreage plays because they have more money to, to, be, to be doing more of that kind of activity. What advice do you have to a landowner who might not be super savvy but is being presented with these opportunities? Where would you advise them to go to learn or what questions would you say that they need to start asking so that they make the best decision, not only for them and their family, but one that's obtainable and a happy agreement between operator and land? Well, probably one of the biggest things that I've seen lately is more and more landowners are getting an attorney. Okay. Um, but that obviously, That's fair. That obvious, and that is totally fair, and I'm more than happy to work with any attorney out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but not every landowner can afford that. So oftentimes I will uh, refer people to the National Association of Royalty Owners. Okay. They are a tremendous resource for landowners who don't know. They will walk you through the lease. They will walk you through the terms. They are a disinterested third party. And if anything, they're more interested in preserving your rights than anybody else's. I would say so. So um, they're a great resource for anybody that has questions <laughs> as a landowner. Um they they're probably my number one. Otherwise, outside of that, I think you go to a to a uh, to an attorney if you okay. can afford that. Um, one of the big beefs that I have is a lot of companies now have popped up and they'll send letters out to landowners saying, um, "Let us take the risk out of um, of owning minerals for you. We're going to buy your minerals. We're going to take all that risk away from you." And wow. <laughs> um, I I get calls on a fairly frequent basis saying, "I've gotten this letter. What do you think I should do?" And I said, "Well, you know, first and foremost, you should talk to your own attorney and figure out what works for you." But my general advice is never sell minerals. Yeah. And there is no risk associated with owning minerals. Mm -hmm. And I, I get very frustrated that that's that they're putting that message out there, too. Mm -hmm. So um, so anytime you get a letter like that, that's, again, when I would reach out to an attorney or to NARO. Um, they will absolutely help you. CAMRO is the Rocky Mountain version of NARO. Um, I think it's the Colorado Association or the Rocky Mountain Association of Mineral Owners, but um, so they are more specific to this general region. Okay. Um, but do your research. Yeah. Um, Ask questions. Yeah. Find a good you know find a good land man. You know? <laughs> I mean I've I've talked to a lot of people uh, that that um, own minerals and you know I have no interest in whether they what they do with them but I'm yeah. happy to tell them this is what you should be looking for in a lease this is why this is important exactly um, this is what you can negotiate which is pretty much everything yeah. but there are certain things that you know you can't really negotiate this um, so you know I'm more than happy to talk to anybody about any of that kind of stuff mm -hmm. because it is um, it is important mm -hmm. and it is, you know, you should do everything you can to protect that interest. And landmen are definitely the stewards, not only for the ownership, but also for the operator. And it's good to hear that you're giving options to both sides. But to that point, you said what it means to be a good landman. You and your senior team have gone above and beyond to vet who, you know, and, and steer the younger generations. So when y'all are looking for someone to bring onto your team, what qualities, what, I guess, criteria do they have to hit on their resume so that someone who's trying to ascend the ranks even now can sit there and say, 
this is what I need to do to be a good landman in this day and age, to stand out and to exceed past my peers. Well, you know, first and foremost, obviously, in today's day and age, if you want to come on board as a landman, you either have to have a law degree or a PLM degree. So you that's have to have... to me, that's so complex. <laughs> well, you have to have that just to get in the door. Yeah. Um, and... Me personally, what I think makes a good landman is somebody um, that's a strong communicator, mm-hmm. somebody that's very respectful of the fact that you are coming on somebody else's property, and that this is, like I said, usually multi-generational, something that they know and love and that they've worked with forever. Mm-hmm. What I don't like to see in landmen, particularly young landmen, is they st- tend to stick to this is the contract. We have the right to be here. And that's harsh. It's it. You know, do you have the right to be there under an existing contract? Yeah. A lot of times you do, especially in the DJ where some of these contracts are so old. Yeah. But um, but that's just it. They're so old. They are very old contracts and they don't cover a lot of things that you need to cover now. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, sometimes you need to amend them and change them and Mm -hmm. uh, work with the person that you're working with now, not somebody who signed this 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's really important that they are respectful, that they understand that even if they have the right to be there, they it's still a negotiation. Mm-hmm. They still need to um, they still need to work with that person to make it a win-win situation. You can't just walk in and sort of steamroll over all over everybody and say, oh you know, we have the right to be here, so too bad, so sad. This is the date we're starting. You know, you just can't do that. Yeah. I see that, unfortunately, too much. Oh, Um, that's sad. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, so I think you have to, you have to have some compassion for the imposition Mm -hmm. um, that you're putting on them as a landowner. Um, When I was a division order analyst, you know, you're dealing with people uh, oftentimes somebody's just passed away, they need to understand, you know, how do I go about doing this? It's a very frustrating situation. How do I transfer everything? Yeah. Um, you know, there's, you're, you're, you really need to be a people person if you're yeah. going to be in any aspect of land. Mm-hmm. Depend, it, you know, you also need to... A people person with a law degree. Yeah, well... What an yeah. anomaly. <laughs> it's, it's amazing how many lawyers I talk to who don't really understand oil and gas, though, too. That's true. And, um, and... You know, they might be a great litigator, but they're not very good at property rights. Yeah. Uh, So you also have to understand, even if you don't have a law degree, you have to understand the contract, what you're bound by, what you're not. If Mm -hmm. you don't understand that, reach out to your legal department or reach out to your attorney. Um, We all have to have one. Yep. And um, ask those questions. I mean, the number one thing that I used to say to my new grads was, you know, there is no such thing as a stupid question. And it's better that you ask it now mm-hmm. than to go ahead and make a decision and do something and beg forgiveness later because it doesn't generally you work that way. You won't get forgiveness later. That's not the way this one works. Right. <laughs> so um, if you don't know, ask. And yeah. um, I, I don't care. I still ask every day. I don't, there's no possible way. I've been doing this for almost 40 years and it changes daily. Yeah. And, um, there are new contracts. There's, there are new rules and regulations that you have to abide by. Um, and there's no way you can know it all. So yeah. don't ever get tired of asking questions. <laughs> so. Well, Lisa, thank you so much. You have answered the educational portion, which is really just for me. Um, you've given us what to do in order to excel in land and how complex land actually is. It still blows my mind. It's more complex than some of the stuff that the subsurface teams get uh, deal with daily. So thank you so much for taking the time. 
if anybody has questions for Lisa, you can always reach out to me because there are just so many other aspects we could go over. But thank you for the value you bestowed and taking the time today. Thank you so much for having me again. Appreciate it. Well, heck, is Lisa Hamill the first lady of land or what? She always provides such value, and she is an excellent influencer and advocate for all things oil and gas. If you haven't already, check out her other episode on the crude audacity. Challenge the narrative, change the world. It's an absolutely killer episode as well. As y'all know, 2020 is going to be a killer year, and there is a lot to do. So head on over to the website at www.thecrudeaudacity.com to check out upcoming events, sponsorship opportunities, and what is happening around the oil patch. Hold on. One more thing before you go. If today's episode brought you any sort of value, go online, rate, review, subscribe. Also, if you have any topics or influencers you would like us to feature, you can get in touch with us by Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or the website at www.thecrudeaudacity.com. Thanks so much for your engagement, and until next week, give them hell.